I want to say a, a particular welcome to those of you who are guests with us this morning. My name is Alex. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted if you're joining us for the first time, whether that's in person or online. Thank you so much for being a part of things, especially if this is your first time ever or first time in a long time in a church setting. I've been hoping you'd make your way here some Sunday morning. I've been expecting you, actually. What we are all about is really simple, connect people to God, to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things here this morning. This is our last week of a series called Counterculture for the Common and good. If you're just joining us, what we've been saying is that for 2,000 years, Jesus followers have been doing what Jesus told us to do, which is to form communities that were totally different from the culture around them because they were following Jesus. Sometimes people around them loved them and admired them. Sometimes people around them thought they were just weird, and sometimes people around them hated them and tried to kill them, just like Jesus said that they would. But the, the regardless of how the people around us are sort of responding to us. Following Jesus means you're going to live life differently than the culture around you. There's going to be things about your life that are just different from the culture around you. So this is one of the biggest challenges of being a Christ follower. How do you go against the flow in a way that's for the common good? That is that we actually love our neighbors the way that Jesus calls us to. In week one, we hit on sort of the core truth, the big idea for this whole series, which is that Jesus is Lord, right? 2,000 years ago, the mantra of the whole Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord, and it sure looked like it. He had the biggest empire anyone's seen for hundreds of years, so much power, politically, militarily, but the early Christians were emphatic. I know it looks like Caesar is Lord, but there's only one person that God raised from the dead. His name is Jesus, and he's actually King of Kings and Lord of Lords, no matter what it looks like. And 2,000 years later, Rome, gone, line of Caesars, broken, Church of Jesus Christ rolls on and on and on and on because there is one Lord. His name is Jesus, and we are gathered together to worship him. And when we gather together in his name, we form this community called the church, and our job is to sort of live out this counterculture for the common good. So that's what we've been drilling down into over these last few weeks. So to close out this series today, we're going to talk about something that the world wishes we wouldn't talk about and that some of us wish we wouldn't talk about. Today we're going to talk about evangelism. Everybody groan? Excellent. Excellent. Nice job. So we're going to talk about evangelism, and this is something that, like, whether you're a church person or not, faith person or not, you probably have some sort of hang-up on, right? So if you're not a church person, not a faith person, so glad you're here, chances are you've been annoyed by someone trying to do this, right? Trying to share their faith with you in ways that were heavy-handed or obnoxious or just difficult to be with. But here's the truth. If you're not really involved in church very much, here's the truth. Most church people don't like it either. Some of us have tried to share our faith and it didn't go well, right? It went poorly. We bobbled it. We got a question we got hung up on or we didn't share it very, very creatively, very thoughtfully. And someone got angry at us. We're like, we're never doing that again. Some of us walk around with a sort of vague sense of like, I should do more of this or I feel a little guilty, but I don't know how. And so we feel kind of, we wish we kind of just go away and not bother us anymore. And some of us uh, sort of agree with the larger culture that says that's not even right. We shouldn't even try to share our faith with other people. I want to suggest that there's two equal and opposite pitfalls that we've fallen into as Christians and really around the world in general when it comes to sort of this whole idea of sharing our faith. Uh, On one extreme is what I'm going to call crusadism. You've known a crusader, right? Forcing the expansion of Christianity and conversion by any means necessary. We're right, everybody else is wrong, and it's our job to make sure everybody knows how right we are. In any way, shape, or form, right, politically, militarily, we're going to kind of enforce Christianity, right? You see this throughout church history with the Crusades, obviously, Spanish Inquisition. You see this throughout church history. And I want to suggest to you that this is a problem that the church has, but it's not just a Christian problem. Crusadism takes many forms. Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism all have versions of this in their own history. And then as, as secularism grows, there is a fundamentalist streak of some secularism, isn't there? 
a crusadism and secularism that results in what we call council, cancel culture, right? This is what has to be, and this is how it has to be, and if you don't live up to our standards, we're going to cancel you, right? That is, a, that is the fundamentalist sort of expression of secularism that takes place everywhere. So crusadism is in almost every form. It takes all kinds of packages, but it's particularly ugly when it takes a Christian package, right? Because that's not how Jesus lived, okay? So crusadism is sort of one extreme on one end, but then there's the overcorrection on the other end, which is just universalism. All religions, all faiths kind of basically teach the same thing. No one can really know. So just choose whatever works for you. Now, there's a few core tenets of universalism. One is you need to be nice. Two, you need to be happy. Three, God doesn't really need to be involved in your life unless that works for you or you neither. You're kind of into that sort of a thing. And four, faith is a very private thing, so it's just whatever works for you. So here's my question. Who's at the center of whatever works for you? You are. Isn't that convenient for all of us? Wouldn't it be delightful if you were the center of the universe all the time? That's how you want to live, right? That's the thing you want to live for. You are the center of the universe. Let me just encourage you. You should be, you should be very suspicious of anything that makes you the center of the universe. Because for centuries, we try to make the earth the center of the universe, and it turns out that the universe does not hang together unless the sun is. Unless there's something else at the center of the universe, the universe collapses. Today, we declare with Christians throughout the centuries that there is one center of the cosmos. Jesus is Lord. And there's a third way that avoids both the pitfalls of crusadism and sort of the laziness and sort of the, sort of almost the anger of universalism. There's both ends of that that can get kind of angry. And that third way is biblical evangelism. And biblical evangelism looks neither crusadish nor ambivalent about what people believe. And I want to suggest to you that the early church had the same kind of challenges and situation and context that you and I face today. They were surrounded by other religions surrounded by other philosophies. And here's what they believed, that two core convictions that drove kind of how they lived their lives, two core convictions that tell us why we're here 2,000 years later, singing the name of Jesus, thousands of miles away from where these things happened, and thousands of years from when they happened, we're here celebrating the grace of Jesus because they believed two very important things. The first thing they believed was this. God's done something utterly unique in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and it's for all people. God's done something that he's never done anywhere else before. No other philosophy says this. No other religion says this. God has done something utterly unique in putting on flesh the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And this is something that no other religion has ever taught. It's completely new. It's completely inverted from the way that the world thought it was going to be. This is totally unique, and it's for all people everywhere. That was their core conviction. They died. They laid down their lives believing this. And the second conviction they had was they had to share that news in a way that actually loved their neighbor, just like Jesus told us to, right? Deeply convicted, this matters for all people, and we have to love, honor, and respect our neighbors, even the neighbor that disagrees with us, even the neighbor that hates us. This is what it meant for them to be a counterculture for the common good, and I wanna, I'm gonna invite all of us as Chatham Community Church to lean in. This is what it means for us, too, to be a counterculture for the common good, because here's the good news, my friends. God raised Jesus from the dead so you don't have to die forever. Isn't that great news? Isn't it great news that sin and death no longer have the last word over you any, anymore, ever? Isn't it fantastic news that resurrection is possible, that you can live eternally in joy forevermore? Isn't that fantastic, great news? Jesus is Lord. That's great news. But we're not going to go storm the castle like crusaders, nor are we going to sort of, sort of, 
fold under the pressure and the lie that it doesn't matter what people believe as long as they're happy. That is also not true. We're going to navigate between those two pitfalls and do the best we can to be a church community that puts words around this incredibly great news that Jesus is Lord. Because someone has to tell you good news. And the only way people know about the good news is if you and I tell them. We're going to look at a passage today out of Romans chapter 10. Now, if you're new to the Bible, we're so glad you're here. No one knows who started the church in Rome, but the Apostle Paul is starting churches all over the place. And he hears about the church in Rome, delighted that they're there. And he writes a letter to the church in Rome, sort of uh, really articulating his most uh, sophisticated argument about Jesus and theology and how to live it out. It's complicated. It's dense. It's glorious. It's kind of his magnum opus. Now, before Paul met Jesus, Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the crusaders of their day, right? The Pharisees were passionate that the people of Israel needed to obey, obey, obey the Old Testament law. And that's how God was going to come back to Israel, drive out the Romans, and give them their land back. So Paul was passionate about Israel and the people of Israel his whole life. And then he meets Jesus, and Jesus sends him all over the Mediterranean. He starts these churches that initially were all Jewish, but then all these other non-Jews, these Gentiles come in. And Paul has no idea what to do with this. No one expected this. Paul didn't want it. Paul didn't like the Gentiles. He thought they were ugly and smelled bad. And so Paul has to figure out and help the Jews and the Gentiles figure out how do you share sacred space together because they've never done this before. And so throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles, helping them to figure out who, what does it mean to be the people of God together? What does it mean to be the church together? How do we do this sort of Christianity thing together when we've never shared sacred space together? And so Paul is talking regularly to Jews and then to Gentiles and then to all of them together. And in Romans chapter 10, he makes the turn to share his heart. He has loved the people of Israel his whole life. He has longed for their redemption, for God to move among them his whole life. And in Romans chapter 10, we get a slice, a picture of Paul's passion, his longing for the people of Israel to know the love of God. Romans 10, starting in verse 1, he writes this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is they may be saved. For I can testify about them. They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Well, the, uh, the holidays are upon us. For some of you, that brings joy and jubilation. For some of you, dread and anxiety, because there's so much to do. But the, the commercials have been rolling out for weeks, right? I think the commercials started right before Halloween, and they're just going to keep rolling out, right, all the way to Christmas. And these commercials and these campaigns point to Christmas Day, right? Christmas Day is sort of the goal of all these campaigns. And at the, once Christmas Day comes, right, the holiday campaigns, the Christmas campaigns, the Buy This For Your Kids campaigns, those things go away. And what Paul is arguing is this, that the Old Testament law, the prophets, the, the, the temple, all that stuff, it was one long campaign, and the whole, goal, the whole thing was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of the law. the law. The word culmination there is the word telos. We get the word telescope from that, right? The telescope, the law, the prophets, the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was telescoping, pointing to Jesus who fulfills the law, who rounds out the law. So Jesus is the one who fulfills all this, and the goal is righteousness. You see that word? There may be a righteousness for everyone who believes. See, there's two ways that we can get to God for those of us who care about those sort of things. And not everybody does, but for those of us who care about God or have some sense of who God is or that we want to be right with God, there's two ways to get there. There's the religious way, and then there's the Jesus way. 
The religious way generates righteousness, rightness by all the things you do. Self-righteousness. I'm going to do all the right boxes, check all the right things, make all the right sacrifices. I have a record of righteousness that makes me right before God. That's self-righteousness. That's religion. And then there's Jesus' righteousness, this whole new way of getting righteous, which is not through self-righteousness. It is gift righteousness. It's grace righteousness. It's this new thing that God has done in Jesus where you don't try to perform for God. God actually performs for you. He lays his life down for you to give you this gift of righteousness. And so Paul, who spends his whole life building a self-righteous resume and encouraging other Jewish people to build their own self-righteous resume, be good, be good, be good, now says that whole thing is over. Jesus has come to fulfill the perfect one, has made righteousness available, right relationship with God available through everybody. No longer is it about your self-righteousness or our corporate righteousness. Now it's about the righteousness of Jesus. It's gift righteousness. It's grace righteousness. And he longs for his own people, the people of Israel, to receive this gift from God. His heart breaks, right? He says this, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for the Israelites is they may be saved. They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. See, Paul was zealous for God previously, right? He was all about the Old Testament law, all about the rules. He was good at it. He was a crusader. He did all the things right. It gave his life meaning and purpose and direction. He felt great about being a crusader. He felt fine about it. It gave him purpose. It made him feel warm and fuzzy inside. It made him feel important and great. Paul was all in on doing all the law, all the things well. And you know what? As good as it made him feel, he was still wrong. Because merely being passionate about something and merely it working for you for some period of your life doesn't make it right. I have many people in my larger family who've got a great sense of direction. Some of you have good sense of direction. I have no sense of direction whatsoever, right? Those genes skipped right over me. Uh, and, and any of you remember the days before GPSs? Remember those days? Old people, remember? Like the days before GPSs was like paper maps? Who has those things anymore? They're totally, like you would print out MapQuest pages and pages of paper. Remember that? that? That was so ridiculous. So in the days before GPSs, when I was going somewhere new, I would do one of two things. Either I would, uh, in an OCD fashion, get super detailed direction because I knew I would get lost. And if I did not do that, I would get lost. If I was going somewhere new. And sometimes when I was going somewhere new, and I, was, I realized I was a little turned around, I would be like, I would kind of look around me, I'd drive around. And I'm like, no, I, all right, I, I think I know where we're going. I think I know where we're going. And I would say, yes, I'm sure. It must be that way. It's got to be that way. And 99% of the time, it was not that way. I was totally wrong. Because it didn't matter how sure I was that I was right. There was a reality and I either needed to conform to that reality or I stayed lost forever. That's how it worked. There was the law. There was the Old Testament law, sacrificial system. All that was a prelude to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law, the one who makes all things complete. He is the goal, the telescope of those things. And before Paul met Jesus, he was passionate for the people of Israel to be saved from the Romans. And now that he has met Jesus, he still wants the people of Israel to be saved. This time he wants them to have a righteousness that is not their own righteousness. It is a gift righteousness. It is a grace righteousness that comes from Jesus. Because if God has done something definitive, for the whole world, you can't say that's optional for the whole world. It is either the gift that changes everything or it is wrong. And Paul refuses to say, hey, it's okay for the people that I love, the Jewish people, just to keep obeying the law, keep trying to generate their own righteousness. It's okay for the people of Israel just to keep performing and hoping that that works for them before God. He says, no, 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 no. If, 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 that, if that could happen, if we could get to God 
by our own religious practices, then Jesus died for nothing. There's no point for Jesus to die if that works for everything. If you being a good person gets you right before God, Jesus dying on the cross is a waste of his life. It's a mistake. Shouldn't have happened. If you can't be right before God by working really hard and doing all the right things, then you need Jesus, just like everybody else. Paul was convinced that you couldn't just be good enough to get to God, that we actually needed God to do something, that God had done something in Jesus that was not just recreational, but essential for us to be right before God. And he unpacks it a little bit further along in Romans 10, starting in verse 8, about what that looks like. How do we actually engage with the faith that God is inviting us into in Jesus? How do we receive that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ? Here's what he says in verse, in verse 8. This is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. That if you declare with your mouth, what does it say? Jesus is Lord. There it is, right? That's it. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many, uh, many years ago, I went through a really dark season spiritually. I was in a really cynical place, a really dark place. And I was sort of at a place where I'd sort of torn down all the things I learned. Like I was like, I was just deconstructing, 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 deconstructing. I was sort of, I was on the brink of walking away from the whole thing. And I came at the end of it, at the end of this sort of long, several, several month slide of sort of cynicism, I came to what I felt like was the core question. Did God raise Jesus from the dead? Like I stared that question down and I knew that the road forked there. And I knew that that was pretty much the, the core of it. Either that was true or it wasn't true. If it wasn't true, I could walk away from the whole thing because that's what the scripture said. And if it was true, then I need to rebuild. And I don't remember how I came to this, but eventually I came to the place where, you know what? I actually believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I think the Spirit just stopped my cynical heart from kind of corroding over the whole thing. I think the Holy Spirit just intervened at that moment to stop me from going down the path I was going down. I was like, okay, I think God raised Jesus from the dead. And from there, I started to rebuild slowly. And one of the things that I would, I'd been wrestling with for months was how miserable the church was. What a disaster it's been. So many mistakes. So much brokenness, so much racism, so much hatred, so much vitriol, so much about it's been such a train wreck throughout history. I was so cynical about the church. But then I realized, even in my cynical moments, I had, to, I had to realize the truth of the matter was it wasn't just broken, it was also beautiful. There were also things over the last 2,000 years that have been magnificent. People who've lived out the way of Jesus in a way that's totally changed the world. Nobel Peace Prize winners, right? Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Desmond Tutu. Those are some headliners, right? William Wilberforce, who, who ended the slave trade in all the colonies. He spent his whole life trying to end the slave trade. Finally, finally on his deathbed, the bill passes. He's been trying to bill pass for decades and decades. The, there have been Jesus followers who have changed the world because of the way of Jesus. And those are just the headliners, right? There's millions and millions of other people that won't get headlines, who invented the whole hospital system. That was Christians. Built schools, started food pantries, feeding hungry people, desperate people, changing the world in small ways. 
And over the weeks and months, as I started with God raised Jesus from the dead, and then there's this thing called the church, which is beautiful and miserable and messy all at the same time, I started to slowly rebuild faith in that, the fact that God was good, that, the, that Jesus was Lord, and that there was good news to be had. And over months and months, I started to rebuild, kind of brick by brick, my faith. And I came to the place where I could say with Paul this good news, that I could declare with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. All that, once again, felt like good news to me. And the truth of the matter was, it was good news, and it was always true. I just had to go through a season where I kind of tumbled all the way to the bottom of the mountain and then slowly rebuilt my faith from the bottom up. And over the weeks and months, as I rebuilt my faith, I started, to, I started to think a little bit about what the scriptures say. I started to begin to say, well, along with the scripture, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, or my Christian friends and my atheist friends, or my Buddhist friend, or my apathetic friends who don't care about spirituality of God, or anyone else in the world, there's no difference. The same Lord Jesus is Lord over all, and richly blesses, eagerly blesses, longs to bless all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and I as I emerged from my fog of cynicism about faith and religion and religious practices I realized all the best parts of me were totally from Jesus all the best parts of me I learned from Jesus a life of faith hope and love way better than any other worldview especially the cynicism I was falling into cynicism is so corrosive and so deadly it's so empty so vacuous it means nothing it leaves you with nothing a life of faith hope and love that's a life that's beautiful and I continue to drill down other biblical values and principles uh, that, that, that Jesus teaches, right? Uh, the, the idea of reconciliation. Grace is amazing. Forgiveness is wonderful. Courage, wisdom, humility, joy, peace. The word shalom, bringing all things right together. All those great things were values I had, things I wanted to be. If I could live out the biblical values, that makes for a beautiful life. That was the life I wanted to live. And it was all the way of Jesus. Jesus was the one that introduced all those things to me and to the whole world. The Old Testament had, those, had some of those things floating around, the peace, the joy, the love. But, they, but Jesus was the telos, the telescope, the one who brought it all together. Meanwhile, the pagan world of the Romans looked nothing like the way of Jesus. Nothing like the way of Jesus. In the Roman world, it was all about power, power, and more power. That's what pagans loved. Pagans worshipped power. And the people they conquered deserved to be conquered because they were weaker. That's what weak people get. They get conquered. That's how it works. Anytime today you hear anyone advocating for an oppressed group, anytime today you hear anyone saying marginalized people should be taken care of in a particular way, the only reason why they're saying that is because Jesus taught us that. Because if the pagan world had snuffed out Christianity like they tried to do, if the Romans had killed the church, it wouldn't be about caring for marginalized group. If you complained in the first century, I'm a marginalized group, I'm an oppressed group, the Romans would have said, come here, I'm going to oppress you some more. Sissy. Come here, you. Quit your complaining. I'll give you something to complain about. Romans enslaved oppressed groups. Jesus was the one who elevated oppressed groups. Jesus was the one who creates this whole category of caring for people who are oppressed and marginalized. The way of Jesus is a thing that has changed the world. 
The Jewish worldview cared mostly about Judaism and Israel and, and wanted God of the universe to care about the Jewish people. The pagan world, meanwhile, had all these gods and they tried to keep them all happy, right, on a contract basis. There's all these different gods and you just kept sacrificing to the right gods and they give you the goods, right? They give you your, your military victories, they give you uh, babies, they give you crops, they give you all these things if you make the right sacrifices, right? So that was sort of how the pagan gods worked. You just did the right things and checked the right boxes. And into this world where Jews want deliverance just for Israel and the pagans just want more gods and more power and more fame and more glory, the Christians come along. And the Jesus followers say, the God of Israel is the true God, but he has done something that no other God has ever done. Put on flesh, lived among us, suffered, bled, died. The Father raised him from the dead. And that God of Israel calls now all people, Jew and Gentile, all over the world to come and know the God of the universe in and through the good news of what God has done in Jesus. That King of Kings and that Lord of Lords will not merely be stapled onto another list of all these other gods. It's not just another religious option. It is the God that trumps all religious options. It's not just another religious practice. It is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that is Lord over every religious practice. And that says all people must come and know what I have done to save all people. So there's an urgency that cuts through this bland universalism of whatever, right? The early Christians did not say whatever. The church would have died. We wouldn't be here. We would not be here today if the church had just said whatever, worship however you want to. And at the same time, it goes against crusadism, which says we're going to go conquer all those people, all the people who don't know, because we follow the way of Jesus. How did Jesus get to be king of kings and lord of lords? Not by forcing people, not through military victory, by laying down his life. He forgives those who crucify him. That's the one we follow. That's the model we follow. That's the evangelism we're called to walk in. But here's the thing. It's not intuitive. No one's going to look at the stars and say, oh, God must have raised Jesus from the dead. No one's going to look at the forests and the hills and the valleys and say, the world is so beautiful. There must be a God who put on flesh to come and redeem us and rescue us. What God did in Jesus is news. It's history, and the only way that you know news and history is if someone tells you news and history. The only way you know what God has done in Jesus is if someone communicates to you exactly what God has done in Jesus. I was getting lunch a number of years ago with a wonderful woman as part of our church. She grew up in a secular Jewish house. Like her, there's no, no religious practice whatsoever, but culturally and ethnically they were Jewish, and they were all sec good secular Jews, and she met Jesus as an adult. And she was really wrestling with this whole idea of evangelism because all her family were good secular Jews and they had no interest in God whatsoever. And she was like, who am I to tell them that they need Jesus, right? Which I totally get, right? That's where many of us are. Like, who are we to tell people who don't know Jesus that they need Jesus? How's that supposed to work? I totally got this. And so, uh, so, I, so I was talking to this woman and I said, I totally get, I got family, I've got friends who fit the same category. Good people, don't care about God, don't care about Jesus. So my question to this woman who became a, a, a Christian later in life, I said, uh, how much difference has Jesus made in your life? She said, oh, it's changed everything. I said, yeah, me too. How important has grace and forgiveness and mercy become in your life? She's like, oh, it's changed everything. I used to live under so much guilt, so much shame, all these places where I felt like I was failing over and over again. Jesus has totally set me free from all that. It's one of the best things that ever happened to me. I was like, yeah, me too. And I was like, you know what? The only reason why you and I know about any of this is because someone told us. The only reason why the best thing that's ever happened to you and to me has happened to you and to me is because someone told us what God did in and through Jesus. And the only reason why they knew about it was because someone told them. And the only reason why they knew about it was because someone told them. 
And 2,000 years ago, the only reason why anyone knows about it is because some people, at great cost to themselves, often at the risk of their lives, were so convinced that what God had done in Jesus was so ultimately definitive, was such good news, they risked their lives to tell colleagues, co-workers, neighbors, the good news about what Jesus had done. And that chain goes on and on and on and on and on. For 2,000 years, people are telling friends, colleagues, co-workers, often at great cost to themselves, certain that what God has done in Jesus is utterly unique, utterly necessary, and utterly beautiful, and yet so convinced that their job was to love, honor, respect their neighbors, that they're not just going to go and steamroll everybody in their way to make sure they all believe exactly what we believe. And so, my friends, the only reason why you and I are here, the only reason why you and I are here 2,000 years later, declaring the good news that Jesus is Lord, the only reason why I'm here today with the thing that's shaped me more than anything else, the best thing's ever happened to me, the only reason why I know that best thing's ever happened to me is because there's a chain of 2,000 years of people declaring the good news who were not cowed into silence by whatever intimidation was coming at them from the culture. But nor were they going to strong arm everyone and bully them into believing exactly what they believed in. They believed that Jesus was Lord. That was ultimate. The call to love the neighbor was real. And so there was a real call to go and live this out in ways that were gracious, humble, but certain. Loving. Loving our neighbor by declaring the good news. Because it is news. And the only way you know anything about news is if someone tells you the news. And I can't say anything better than Paul does as we wrap up this part of the passage from Romans 10. He writes this. How then can the people out there call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can the people hear without someone, that's you, me, each of us, preaching to them? That's not preaching at them. That's not doing what I'm doing here. That's sharing, declaring, telling your story, telling the story. How can anyone preach unless they're sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. My friends, as we close out the series, I've been sitting here to tell you some really great news. One, God's given me beautiful feet. They're not particularly beautiful apart from Jesus. And two, Jesus is Lord. God sent his son, die on a cross, suffer, bleed. God raised him from the dead on the third day so that your sin and my sin, your death and my death, don't have the last word over us anymore. Life does. Grace does. Jesus does. And as we receive that love, we come together as a community, and we say, this matters. We say, we're going to be a counterculture for the common good. And part of being the counterculture, Part of being the counterculture for the common good is we actually declare the good news of what God has done in Jesus. And so we're going to humble ourselves before each other and before the Lord and before the world and say, we love you so much. We're going to do the best we can to speak words of grace and truth to you in ways that you can hear and receive. We're going to be a community with beautiful feet. We're going to be individuals with beautiful feet, beautiful feet. And we're going to send people out of here with beautiful feet to be a part of what God has done in Jesus. Now, as we close today, I'm going to do something special. Uh, I'm going to bring someone up here, an old friend of mine, that is a missionary that we support. Now, he is a missionary we support in a country that is closed to missionaries. So what that means is he can't get up here and show his face on camera to our online, uh, online community. So if you are online, we're actually going to wrap up the stream early today so I can do this interview with my friend, and he can share a little about what God's doing uh, overseas in a place where he's not particularly welcome. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pop up the discussion questions right now for you at home to have for a few seconds up there. And uh, I'm going to bless you as you uh, go ahead into Thanksgiving week. My hope and my prayer 
for those of you online is that you might know the spirit of Christ, the love of Christ, the power of Christ, and that you might be confident that the Lord has sent you to wherever he's sending you over Thanksgiving week and into the Christmas holiday with beautiful, beautiful 